0: You know, to many 21st century folks, this passage, this gospel passage may sound a bit strange. A man is possessed by a demon that has made him ritually unclean, religiously contaminated. So he shouts out Jesus's name in a ploy to get control of Jesus, just as someone might shout out your name so that for a brief moment they have control of your attention and bodily movements. So this this may all seem a bit strange because as one of C.S. Lewis's colleagues, George MacDonald said in his sermon on evil spirits, many think that in the cases recorded, we have but the symptoms of well-known diseases. And Jesus just adopted the mode of speech common amongst these imaginative and unscientific Easterners and cast out the so-called evil spirits simply by healing the diseases attributed to their influences. In other words, many of our contemporaries would say that this story is really about a man who has some psychological or physical problems that need attention. And MacDonald says there's nothing unchristian in that kind of an interpretation. After all, in our First Corinthians passage that Tom read, the Apostle Paul, or that uh, Stephanie read, the Apostle Paul seems to be instructing those who are otherwise naive that idols aren't real. And John Calvin, he didn't deny the existence of demons, but he insisted that since the Bible doesn't say much about them, then neither should we. And one of our spirituality writers says that in our culture, we should be more concerned about self-possession and less concerned about demon possession. So maybe some don't put much stock in accounts of demon possession today. But one of the Congolese pastors that Treveka and I know has warned us Westerners that our worldview has what missiologists, people who study missions, call the excluded middle. We believe in a God above and the world we see below but there's nothing in between. It doesn't take long to be out of our North American context and our Western materialist worldview to realize that Pastor Malumba is right. There actually is a lot going on in an otherwise excluded middle. Again, I I love what McDonald goes on to admit. He says, (laughs) I know too little, I understand too little to dare give such an opinion as possesses even the authority of personal conviction. All I have to say on the subject must therefore come to little. To me, the marvelous is not therefore incredible. He says, I have no difficulty in receiving the old Jewish belief concerning possession. And I think it better explains the phenomena recorded than the growing modern opinion. We can affirm the existence of realities in the middle, in the excluded middle, we can reaffirm those realities like demons without at the same time having to reject modern science and modern psychology and modern medicine. But that said, Mark is helping us to see an even larger picture in this passage. One of Mark's favorite literary strategies is to to sandwich things. What I mean is this, sometimes Mark will take a story and split it in half in order to surround another story that the split story helps explain. He does this with the cursing of the fig tree, for instance. He surrounds the story of Jesus cleansing the temple with with two parts of that fig tree story. And the second half of that fig tree story that he comes back to reveals that there's not much fruit going on on that withered tree just as there's not real spiritual fruit in the temple. But another way that Mark sandwiches things is right here in our gospel passage. He will sometimes surround a story with a short introduction uh, that is also uh, a short conclusion, both of which make the same point so that you don't miss what he wants you to see in the story. So in verses 21 to 22, Mark writes, and they went into Capernaum and immediately, one of Mark's favorite words, Immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And then following the exorcism of the demons, Mark concludes in verse 27, and they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him what the people are experiencing was something new unlike the scribes the teachers and lawyers of that day whose authority was derived from the tradition of the elders and the primacy of the old testament torah the first five books of the old testament jesus's teachings need no other authority jesus's words are not open to debate they are not to be reassessed on the basis of other authorities in fact jesus's authoritative words even make things happen. The word in Greek here, translated authority, can just as well be translated power. The Jesus who was anointed by the Spirit as baptism, accompanied by the Father's proclamation, this is my son, is the one endowed with supernatural power, whose words are not to be questioned, and whose words actually change reality. These people are alarmed, Because what they witness is a teaching that's qualitatively new in its authority to confront not only demons, but to confront them, a power or authority that they have never before experienced. Now, notice that this story takes place in a synagogue, that the people who are amazed at the power of Jesus' words are God's people. And I think maybe there's a lesson here. How often are we, like the scribes, who give more credence to our own words than to the words of Jesus? How often do we underestimate God's word and, like the audience in this story, are astonished and amazed when we witness the work that God's word accomplishes? We try to theoretically reassess what Jesus means sometimes when Jesus has been absolutely clear. I mean how many how many try to figure out what Jesus meant when he said that it's harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. When what he actually meant was it's harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. I mean the disciples knew what he meant because with their misguided notion that people who are rich are then blessed by God which is not always Accurate, they answer, then who can be saved? They understood what Jesus was saying. And I think we sometimes tend to think that our words have more authority and power than God's word. I first learned this lesson, and it's a lesson that I have to keep relearning. When I was a philosophy major in college, trying to convince my cousin with sophisticated arguments in our correspondence that Jesus was who I claimed he was until my cousin wrote that she had met with a Roman Catholic priest who sent her home to read the Gospel of John. And it was only then that she wrote me how astonished she was by the Jesus she encountered in God's word. I had asked myself if I really believed what is recorded in Isaiah, that God's word goes forth and God's word is guaranteed to accomplish what God wants. Not that Dennis Ockholm's words go forth to accomplish what God wants. So here in this story, in this religious setting with God's people, Jesus's words in teaching and in commanding a demon to shut up and leave a man alone, amaze those who are learning to know better. A man's life is literally shaken to the core. And he is restored to a life of physical and psychological health. And it amazes those who watch it happen. And this kind of thing, we're going to see this, this kind of thing continues throughout Mark's gospel. Over and over again, people are astonished. They're amazed. They're overwhelmed with wonder. They're even terrified and frightened in their response to the Jesus who teaches and exercises and heals and leaves the tomb. And their response is spot on because what's going on here is much bigger than this one little incident of exorcism or or the next incident in Mark's gospel of healing. What is beginning to happen in Mark's gospel is what Jordan alerted us to last week. With the Spirit's empowerment of Jesus at his baptism, the real cosmic battles begin as Jesus announces, the time has come at last, the kingdom of God has arrived. You must change your hearts and believe, believe the good news. Jesus has landed on the beaches, and he's fighting everything that has to do with the evil principalities and powers that want to possess the temples of God where only the Holy Spirit has the right to dwell. And so Paul says to the Corinthian church in chapter 3 of his letter that the Holy Spirit dwells in the church, so don't mess with it. In chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, he tells them that the Holy Spirit dwells in each of them bodily, so don't mess with it. God is really up to something big. And so what Mark is initiating with this story, it's not just about one man. I mean, George MacDonald is on target when he wound up his sermon on evil spirits by insisting, we all need healing. No one who does not yet love the truth with his whole being who does not love God with all his heart and soul and strength and mind, and his neighbor as himself, no one like that is in his sound mind. This is as true, he says, as it would be of us if possessed by other spirits than our own. Every word of unkindness, God help us. Every unfair hard judgment, every trembling regard of the outward and fearless disregard of the inward life, he says, is a siding with the spirit of evil, against the spirit of good. As we'll see in the coming weeks with uh, two more exorcism stories and several accounts of Jesus healing others, feeding hungry crowds, calming storms that rattle us with fear, the kingdom of God is being established in a world that has fallen from what God once declared good. We're reminded in this story that broken persons can be restored to health and wholeness by the creator who made them in God's image. I was meditating on this passage all week, thinking about it in the context of the entire biblical story in which God set about as early as the third chapter of Genesis to restore creation from the ashes and heal human lives that have been dominated by the powers of God's adversaries, by addictions, by hateful ideologies, by diseases that ravage bodies and minds. And in my meditations, a praise song that I first heard in an Anglican church's Easter celebration kept coming to mind. And it might capture what this demon-possessed man himself wondered, and it might express what you need to hear this morning. You've probably heard this praise song before. It goes like this. All this pain, I wonder if I'll ever find my way. I wonder if my life could really change at all. All this earth, could all that is lost ever be found? Could a garden come out from this ground at all? Well, you make beautiful things, God. You make beautiful things out of the dust. You make beautiful things. You make beautiful things out of us all around hope is springing up from this old ground. Out of chaos, life is being found in you. That is the good news. But I just leave you with one warning this morning. Just as Mark tells us that these religious people were amazed when they witnessed the power of Jesus's teaching and miraculous work, and just as Mark originally ends his gospel with an empty tune that leaves two women trembling, you and I might be astonished and even trembling when it happens again, when Jesus interrupts the lives of those who have given in to what controls them, or worse, the lives of those who prefer to live life in the illusion that they are in control. The kingdom is arriving. Jesus is loose in the world. And he will show up in our midst at times and in ways we don't expect. It might be unsettling for those who have lost hope in the chaos and in the dust. But I can't think of any adventure in life that is more exciting and fulfilling than to be where this Jesus shows up and makes beautiful things out of us. Amen.